I have to admit <laughs> that the first day of my job, I fell asleep on the highway. <laughs> What? <laughs> that took a dramatic you hadn't turn. You had not a day of work yet. <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah, I, I was just tired. I had to wake up very early and I did not go for training, but I had to go to my office job, basically, uh, preparing some emails or whatever. And I just uh, was in a Dutch queue, of course, and I fell asleep and I crashed my car behind oh. another car. <laughs> Well, hello. Welcome to Last on the Breaks, the MotoGP podcast, coming to you from the San Marino Grand Prix. Uh, here with myself, Matt Dunn, joining me as ever. We've got Fran Wild. Say hello, Fran. Go on. Hello. <laughs> Apparently we're now a children's television show. I know, exactly. Uh, no, but on today's show we have Wilco Zielenberg, the Patronus Yamaha SRT team manager, also former 250cc Grand Prix winner, team manager to Jorge Lorenzo in Yamaha and Cal Crutchlow when Cal won his World Supersport title and obviously Jorge Lorenzo won his three MotoGP titles. But Fran, why have we got Wilco on today's show? Well, obviously there are a fair few interesting things about the man and his uh, post-riding career, but it's also a couple of our recent episodes have got us thinking as well. What about that transition from rider to whatever you then go on to do afterwards? Uh, and Wilco's a particularly interesting one with the huge success that he's had and really high profile as well, going straight from riding to then working with Yamaha and then, yeah, like we said, uh, has been at the helm during some uh, world titles. So I think it's an interesting prospect for everyone to uh, hear a little bit. And he's a little bit crazy in the best way. So yeah, always um, entertaining. Yeah, well, he's Dutch. So obviously <laughs> they, they all are, aren't they? Uh, no, Wilco, really, really good value for money. Um, well, there's some great stories. We're recording this intro after we've already done the podcast, as we always do. Possibly the nightmare commute from hell uh, on your first day of your new job for Wilco <laughs> Zielenberg. That is a great story. So listen out for that one. Uh, but before we get going, uh, I do want to give you the question of the day. We've not actually done this for a while because we've been a little bit rushed with these intros the last few episodes. Yeah, I feel we? like it's something we just... Yeah, sorry, we forgot about that, yeah. but we do love our question of the day, so it's back. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so the thing I want to ask you guys, and you can tweet us using hashtag MotoGP podcast or leave a comment uh, in the YouTube version of this podcast down below. The question is, do ex-racers or ex-athletes fill all other jobs in their sports better than anyone else is that just a motorsport thing a motorcycle racing thing or does it still go for other sports as well let us know uh, so without further ado i guess hand over to ourselves chatting to the empty seat over there which is going to be filled by wilco zielenberg yeah we're going to flash forward well we're going to flash back in order to uh, take you forward to the interview okay take two take two you so just con- you just continue? Or? Yeah. Okay, that's Welcome cool. once again. <laughs> Welcome Thank back, you. Wilco. Thank you so much for joining us. As I was saying before, we had a bit of a small tech issue there. So we wanted to talk to you on the podcast because, like I said, so many in the paddock started their career as a rider and then moved on to different things. But you've been both incredibly successful at it and were one of the first to do it. And now you're in quite an interesting role anyway especially as the team Patronus obviously starts to have such huge success that we've seen. Uh, And also sort of the perspective you bring as a rider, but maybe also the challenges afterwards and also get to know you a little bit and your career before. Well, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Um, So tell us, Walker Zeelenberg or Zeelenberg, 
as uh, you were telling us, uh, yeah. with how to pronounce your name properly. Uh, tell us about you, the rider, rather than Wilco Zeilenberg, Jorge Lorenzo, team manager, now Patronus manager. Well, obviously, you have a Grand Prix victory to your name. So yes. where did you get your start? Well, I think uh, we were just actually saying that I shouldn't say it, but I started <laughs> when I was four. <laughs> so that's a very long time ago. I'm now 54. So 50 years of experience, basically, in motorcycles and bikes and setups and uh, basically developing uh, bikes and uh, understanding race teams, understanding riders. I had my own riding school uh, when I was racing myself. And also that prospect is very important because you understand how to learn other riders to know their bike and how to uh, control their bikes because everybody needs something different. Yeah. And this is strange. In a car, it's all so easy. You turn on the steering wheel and the bike or the car goes to the right or to the left. In a bike, <laughs> uh, you need your weight balance to move the bike around the racetrack. And of course, uh, you need to understand the uh, braking points, apex points, accelerating points, etc., etc. like cars. But you need to use your body to move your bike around. And you need to have quite some skills to do that. So uh, that is very interesting. But every person has his own balance and his own uh, problems basically to, to do that and uh, this is very interesting and I think this is basically uh, what I try to understand and learn myself to be better, to be mm. a better rider uh, but also to uh, understand other riders to uh, create solutions to give them the feedback they need to get better around the racetrack and uh, it's very specific because some riders they don't need a lot but they need to avoid uh, going over the limit for example so you need to be also quite social and understand mm. uh, other other riders to to uh, you know face the, the their problems okay that's pretty interesting then so it sounds like this was already something that you used a lot in your own career when you were riding rather than, okay, I've retired now from competing and now I change and, oh, I'll do this. It yes, so, like uh, yeah, this is correct. So of course, when I was young and uh, I, I had to teach myself as well because I had no reference. So, of course, you look to other riders, but you don't see so many when you are riding. Basically, you follow once or twice uh, in, in a session. But uh, overall, and when you get older, you understand that other riders have better skills in some areas that you have to improve that. But as soon as you start to teach other riders, you also know that sometimes you need to explain the same thing but in another way to mm. other riders so that they understand what they are doing wrong you know and uh, so this is uh, i think uh, now a strong point uh, to be team manager or rider coach in in the past to uh, accept that uh, some riders has very special skills but uh, leaking uh, some uh, skills in areas where you can help them and uh, not that you are a better rider or whatever but you understand what they need to do to have a better result and uh, i think this is uh, uh, having respect for the good things, uh, what they already know, and the bad things, what they need to learn. And I think uh, in that sense, it's very important to be experienced in this battle. Yeah, I, I, in researching you for, for this podcast, I, really, I didn't realize that you did the Zeelenberg uh, race week with the yes. race week school and whatnot. And so what, what is, uh, what's the difference between teaching someone who can barely get their knee down <laughs> and, then, uh, and then someone who's looking for that extra little hundredth of a second through a corner? What, what's actually more difficult in that sense? No, actually, there is not so much difference because you need to be able to get into the mind and get the trust of the person 
that uh, that understands what I, what you mean and that you mean the best for them to get better. So uh, of course, with the unexperienced rider and me uh, teaching them, of course, there is already a lot of respect because you have a lot of experience yeah. and they know. Uh, but important is that they are willing to learn and also that they uh, trust you to try what you explain. And if it doesn't work, uh, sometimes you need to explain three or four times the same story, but just <laughs> how they are able to handle their bikes in a different way. And uh, of course, the level is, is the li level difference is there, yeah. but the way to be able to change their mind to learn something about it and uh, that this actually uh, it is the same because they need to trust you first and understand their problem and as soon as they face the facts that uh, yeah that it is an issue and it is an area where they could uh, improve then then you already you reach your goal because then they're going to work on it and i think uh, track by track bike by bike tire by tire so there are so many circumstances that are changing it's not just only the riding you know but it's uh, many many things in racing are changing constantly <laughs> Okay, that's pretty Okay, let's rewind a little bit from there. You said you were four, a Oof. whole half century ago when the world was young. When, why did you get a bike? What interested you in it? How did you end up on this career path? Well, actually, my dad put me on a, on a, on a small motorcycle because he was riding bikes himself. Uh, my oldest brother, Ron, uh, he uh, did motocross. He was uh, nine, so he was already on a bike. So we were already on so a racetrack. So you got some family culture of exactly. it from quite early. So my fan was uh, yeah, in, into, into bikes. And uh, when I was six or seven, I was on Zandford on a racing day with uh, Agostini. Oh, nice. I have autographs <laughs> with a book and pictures and this type of thing. Was, it, was he nice to you when you met him? Do you remember? Ago. Yeah. Yeah, very nice. Really? Because yes, I, yes. I feel like I, I like Agustin now. Yes. had good experiences yes. with him since. But when I was younger, I did not have a good experience getting his autograph. <laughs> no? <laughs> he was not what I expected. Yeah, no, actually, it were wet circumstances. Yeah, of okay. course, we were in Holland, in Zandvoort. <laughs> Same so the circumstances UK. were wet. He took the time. And actually, uh, when I started to work with Jorge in 2010, also yeah, uh, Ago came yeah. over into the box and I showed him my autograph with uh, him from oh. and he, he started to cry. You know, oh, I was, yeah, nice. seriously. Lovely, yes. I love that. It oh, was very nice. Yes. Yes. So uh, that was a good experience. Mm. But anyway, so it's from far back. And uh, of course, my dad uh, yeah, put me on that bike. But uh, even after that, I uh, explored myself in motocross until 16. I get a girlfriend, I get married, but always they supported me basically and they were behind me, you know, because, uh, yeah, behind every uh, man in this uh, paddock basically uh, is, uh, is, uh, is a woman hidden, you know, because they're <laughs> at home uh, taking care of your family, so they uh, really take care for them and, uh, yeah, basically grow up the kids and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, be, be more uh, separated from racing. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, the family... You have some family in the paddock now though, don't you? Well, it's not the same. <laughs> no, it's no. not the same. So uh, the family is the family. And uh, of course, we sometimes have a struggle to say, yeah, but uh, racing is priority number one. I said, no, no, family is priority number one. And racing is my uh, passion, you know. So this is a big difference. But of course, it's, uh, I'm not sure if you guys, uh, you know, uh, feel the same. But no, sometimes no, no, it I feels completely. like uh, it's matched. You know, or it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, goes, uh, it goes across each other sometimes. Everyone's different, aren't they? You know, yes. some yeah, people, I'm sure. sure there are plenty of people in this palette for them racing's first and they've told their their families like sorry but you come second but then for some people yeah is yeah family first that makes sense so your career uh 250 cc veteran road in world super sport 
Grand Prix victory. Which, which year was it? I forget. In, in the German Grand Prix, was it 250cc yes. victory? Which year was that? 1990. So yeah. what, what things are you most proud of in your career as a rider? Ooh, well, I think the, yeah, the biggest achievement was, of course, that victory. But especially the way uh, I become to that victory was, uh, I think, uh, important, you know, because, uh, yeah, I started racing in uh, 84, was my first season. So after five years, uh, I was, uh, uh, I had my first victory in, in, uh, in the 250. So, uh, and, and in those years uh, in Holland, so you started racing, but I had to be 18 and have a driver's license. Oh, wow. You know, so actually you're already quite old before you actually can uh, mm. perform. So now these days, everything is so different. So you can start racing on motorbikes, very small, and everything is available. You can buy whatever you want, okay. if you have the money, of course. But in those days, there was nothing, you know, that you had wow. to build your own bike, basically. Yeah. And I started racing with the ATCC. Uh, and and it basically was built up uh, together with me and 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 uh, some mechanics and uh, was Hufel Casal. The engine was very good, and uh, I was uh, yeah basically uh, 16 when I said ah when I'm 18 I want to start road racing. And I was actually quite uh, good in motocross. I was a Dutch champion in 50 cc and 80 cc, but yeah that that had my attention and and uh, my passion I looked like and. Uh, so uh, one of my uh, team managers at that point, uh, he, uh, he went to my, uh, to my sponsors and I said, okay, Wilco wants to race in, uh, in when he become 18, it was uh, 84. So uh, do you agree? We have a, a bike for him. And that's how I went racing in wow. 84. Doesn't happen like that these days, yeah. does it? No. <laughs> no, exactly. So it was really fun. And of course, also after that period. Uh, it's completely different than now. You know, you have to uh, get your license. You have to drive the car yourself. You have to go to Europe, European rounds. You have to travel around Europe. Yeah, like we have now, I think the Northern Talent Cup this weekend have their second round. There's quite a few Dutch kids in there. Yeah. And yeah, it's crazy. They're like... Yes. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's world. what you see uh, and how you actually... Uh, need to be if you want to go to uh, MotoGP yeah, in, in, in the future. Yeah, it's changed so much now, isn't yeah. it? If you don't start early, unless you're some sort of crazy Marquez yeah. Stoner yeah. kind of talent, yeah. it's, yeah. So that's interesting And also, interesting, um, yeah, looking to the past and how they learn to race now is so different than well, when okay. we, you know, I, I learned racing in Holland, which we only had street tracks and, and, and uh, Zandvoort and Assen, so only two tracks. So we were very limited uh, on, yeah. on track knowledge. And as soon as we come to an, uh, a race in, in Garama, for example, I had no idea what <laughs> happened to me. You know, it was double apexes and up and down, and Holland is really flat. So yeah. Yeah, this is the first time you've seen a hill. Exactly, exactly. So uh, now these boys are going to the SEF, and they, they learn uh, hey, here in Spain, uh, or sorry, in Spain and Italy, so many racetracks. So they're, when they arrive in, in, in the World uh, Series, then the, yeah, the experience they have is already so much wider than, than when I arrived. That's amazing. The, um, so what I want to ask you, the main sort of topic of this, uh, of this podcast is about athletes after retirement and starting their second life and second career. Now, we thought you were a great example of that because you've been so ridiculously successful in the second part of your career. But to transition to chatting about that, I want to ask you about your decision to retire from actually racing. Yeah. Um, where did, how did that come about? Because looking at results, it's not a case of you had a horrendous injury and it, you sort of, well, I call it a day now. It's sort of you, what, what actually happened then yeah. when you decided to retire? Well, you, 
you know, your, your, your challenge as a rider is always uh, your passion and your motivation to be the best. You know, so you want to climb, you want to grow up. And of course, as soon as you start winning, you don't want to be second. Mm-hmm. But of course, you need to be sometimes realistic and you get a bit older and sometimes you can win again because in, two, in 1999, I win uh, a super sport race in Monza, basically. And uh, so there was still a good year. I was 33. And the year after was uh, 2000 was my last season. We had a very bad year. Basically, uh, yeah, the bike didn't go where we wanted. And, uh, you know, I was in the back of the field. And at a certain point, you really think, who the hell should I prove that I'm capable to ride a motorcycle? You know, yeah. I did already so many things good, but I'm still in the back of the, of the grid, you know. And this is the moment where you think and realize as well, uh, it's time to get a change. And even at that point, I get an offer from uh, 10K with Honda to, uh-huh. to ride another year in Supersport with the bike. Actually, at that point, who was winning? And uh, But I also had a good offer from Yamaha to be the technical coordinator for uh, uh, racing in, in Europe, production racing, so R6, R1. And I really also uh, had my ambitions in there to, to understand what was going on. And I thought, okay, I can do another year or two, but uh, there will be a moment that I need to decide to stop racing. And I think that was also the correct moment because uh, I made that decision myself. I had a test on the Honda uh, in Essen uh, after the season. And uh, after the test, I said, sorry, I, I'm going to stop. Yeah. So I, I could make the decision myself. I think that helped. And also afterwards, I have been racing and have my re- riding school. So I've always been riding bike, but the competition fact was a bit uh, out of the body. You know, I did not have to prove that I was capable to go two tenths faster than the guy next to me. Yeah. You know, that, that was gone. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that felt really good. It and sounds I think, like the right moment then when you yes. know that it's like, yeah, I still love riding it, but I can ride it on my terms now and yeah. not have to compete with yeah. everybody else. And I say two tenths now, but of course it's a bit more at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you, you, you have been experienced this and I think that for me was the right moment and I, I had a new target and I was still involved in racing. I learned a lot in those seven years actually when I was technical coordinator for Yamaha Motor Europe. And uh, it brought me a lot again. So, uh, yeah. So, so what about that transition then? First day in the new job, you're no longer well, the rider. How I, was that? <laughs> I have to admit that the first day of my job, I fell asleep on the highway. <laughs> what? <laughs> that took a dramatic turn. You hadn't turn. done a day of work yet. <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah, I I was just tired. I had to wake up very early and I did not go for training, but I had to go to my office job, basically, uh, preparing some emails or whatever. And I just uh, was in a Dutch queue, of course, and I fell asleep and I crashed my car behind another car. And I woke up and I said, what is this guy doing? And I said, I put in the clutch and I looked in the mirror, nobody behind me. So I fell asleep. I just hit the car in front of me. But not too dramatic then. So if no, you're no, in no. traffic, fairly just, slow drama. Just the car was okay. gone. So how did that first day go after that? Yeah, explain us how you're like, uh, hi guys, I'm going to be a little bit late. Yeah, actually like that. But they pick up the car, somebody picked me up and brought me to the office. And I, uh, yeah, I was, that was my first working day. <laughs> Right, so, so apart from falling asleep on the way to your job for the first time, um, this, I wanted to, to ask because it, I think athlete is a general uh, consensus that athletes who have participated in the sport, especially and had success, 
there's a general consensus that they are the best people to fill out these sort of managerial positions, technical coordinator type positions, now rider coach positions. Did you feel ready, fully ready equipped to do the technical coordinator job straight away? Or was it a bit daunting? You thought, oh, I'm in over my head here. I've got things to learn. What was, how were you feeling at that point? Well, I was not a completely uh, lunatic uh, computer-wise, I mean, so I, <laughs> I, I get a laptop and I knew email and I, I could uh, surf uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, on the web. But uh, yeah, other than that, I had to learn uh, the, the, yeah, the, the strategies from, uh, from the Japanese, basically, because it was, uh, I was in contact with YMC, with Yamaha, with the Japanese. And uh, so uh, we needed to uh, coordinate uh, all the kit parts for Yamaha. But uh, there was plenty of time to do that, you know, because there was a big hole, basically, uh, uh, also to fulfill, because I, I, I knew the needs from the teams, because I was involved in that. So I also had ideas to, to organize uh, track days for the new... Uh, uh, teams that will ride with Yamaha who can win championships and start uh, like a, a riding day or book the circuit for a couple of days and plan things ahead of the, of the season so that they are prepared better for the season you know and right. on cost of Yamaha it had a, a big uh, influence on all the results and uh, yeah so I could use my experience <coughs> as a rider to prepare the teams in a better way without uh, spending big money so uh, I think uh, yeah it was a good mix and but I needed to learn of course uh, how to come to the office uh, every morning <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing you mainly need to improve upon your commute yeah. Yeah. yeah it sounds like then there was quite a good niche for you when you fit into that role pretty well but like how did you then go from there to the next steps and to where you are now how did you end up leaving that yeah, role and so, what was the decision? Yeah, for me, of course, I was very close uh, to Yamaha. So uh, the World Supersport team uh, with the Belgarda at that point, but also the Superbike team. So, um, uh, yeah, I was already close to the fire and I was also... Uh, um, helping those teams actually to, to, to grow up and to, to uh, uh, solve solutions on, on technical side, but also uh, uh, organization wise. And at a certain point, uh, there was, uh, we had Yamaha Germany with uh, Toykert and Kellner. And uh, yeah, they, they basically changed riders and Udo Mark was in charge. And uh, um, uh, what was his name? He replaced him, uh, Terotin. And uh, basically he was the team manager, but uh, they wanted to stop with him and they needed to another place as a team manager for the World Supersport team. Mm. So then uh, they asked me to fulfill that role in 2007. And I did that in 2007, eight and nine. And in nine, uh, basically we get the title with Carl. Yeah. And uh, yeah, from that moment on, uh, yeah, I, I have been involved as a team manager or rider coach in, in, in race teams. and. Uh, this basically it went very very quick because <laughs> yeah, in, in nine basically we had to stop after the, having the championship in our pocket <laughs> with Carl uh, because it was uh, the crisis you know we had the financial crisis yeah. so there were no sales of no bikes and uh, the, the team had to stop completely and uh, they were searching again within Yamaha for as a team manager for a position uh, for Jorge because uh, they had some issues there and uh, they uh, contacted me, actually Lynn contacted me to fulfill this role uh, with Jorge as, as his uh, team manager at that point. And, and uh, we get the title directly yeah. in 10. Yeah. So, uh, Two years in a row. It wasn't a bad record. year for you, really. It <laughs> <laughs> was, kind of was a very special year. And mm. uh, yeah, if I think back of it, it, uh, yeah, it was uh, like a dream. 
Do um, I, I watched an interview where you and Jorge were, were chatting together, I think after you won that championship. And he said um, how uh, the, the journalist asked, like, what did you think of Wilco when he first came into the team? And he said, well, of course, he's an ex-rider. He talks the language of the riders and therefore he's perfect. Do you feel that's the case with every rider in, in, a, in a role like that? Or do you, because talking to you without brown nosing you too much, you're a very good communicator, right? And I can see how like, you would fit into this role very well. But is this for everybody, every ex-rider? Or do um, you... well, it's, well, it's easy to say yes, of course. <laughs> but I don't think it's always that easy because uh, yeah, every person has his needs and his wishes. But uh, to have the experience as a rider and understand what is going on, because there are uh, many moments to understand how the riders are thinking and what they want and what they need and sometimes they are right but also sometimes they are wrong mm. and uh, and i think it's uh, important how you uh, basically try to uh, uh, guide them in the right way without getting them angry and understand that that we come from their position but they also need to adjust sometimes you know and uh, I think it cannot work always because otherwise it would be, uh, you know, it's not science, but yeah. you need to be uh, also, uh, um, yeah, understandable. I think that, that it will not always work. That's also... Uh, okay. Yeah. I was going to ask, going back to what we said earlier about the difference between looking for that last hundredth of a second with like a real pro and kind of the beginners. How is it when you come in and you have someone who... Lorenzo, obviously, huge name, double 250 champion, the last one to do it. Everyone expects such huge things, and now you've got to be like, actually, you need to change this. <laughs> Is that a bit of a different prospect? Were you immediately just like, okay, this, 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 and the relationship was off to a no. good start? Or how do well, you go about working with someone like that? Yeah, it is sensitive, of course, because, uh, you know, we as riders our egos are very very big you know <laughs> and you have to have that because uh, bottom line you do more things yourself right and you perform outperform yourself compared to the others and then if somebody jumps in and say hey you need to do this and this so your first reaction is hey i know better you know yeah. but as at the moment you understand that the team behind you really wants to uh, yeah. give you a step up you will not maybe react directly, but you listen. And it's the same with Jorge. He never agreed that I was right or Ramon was right or whatever, but he picked it up and he tried it. <laughs> yeah. you know? Is so it this one of those things <laughs> where you're looking at the timing screens and the data and you're like, oh, you did listen. Yeah. <laughs> well, even that you don't have to confirm to them sometimes. Yeah. You know? yeah, it's just like, mm, he knows what we nice are telling them. <laughs> That's awesome. But also sometimes uh, you are talking about skills that he need to do or the riders need to do. It's really difficult to find the way to go around the racetrack mm -hmm. fast. But it's also sometimes very nice that people around you point out really the point where you need to improve. Because as a rider, you just try to find the limit of the tires and that the bike is still turning and stopping. But where you really lose your lap time, sometimes you have no clue because you, you're on the yeah. limit everywhere. But if somebody can say, look, turn one, you have to brake a little bit earlier and let the brakes earlier go, it's very simple. you know. And this yeah. is some points where you can, uh, yeah, give this information and they will try because it's easy to do they don't need to break later and still enter with the same speed no sometimes it's eh, to go slow yeah. is is sometimes in, better to out, go right? faster you know <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and this is uh, yeah this is also very important in this uh, category especially MotoGP. i find that um I, 
I'm not sure whether many people listening know this, but you are basically one of the first rider coaches or performance analysts. I think along with maybe Alberto Pouge for Pedroza, you're one of the first to actually do that. What do you notice? How does it feel now to be one of the first people to do it now? Every, even more, three teams have them all. What's yeah. that like? I think it's a little bit overrated. <laughs> <laughs> but you've employed loads of ex-racers yeah, and other well, people. Yeah, it's true that um, yeah, we were the first, actually, and, and I came as a team manager with Jorge. Uh, we did, I did that for four or five years, but in combination as, as a rider coach as well already, because the first year I started with Jorge, he asked, oh, Wilco, can you have a look around the track? Because, uh, you know, I, I can only follow one or two guys, but uh, sometimes I have problems. And, um, you know, it's sometimes much easier to see the fast boys going around the racetrack. And as soon as I follow them, they, they stop or whatever. So it's very important. To, to specifically go to one pla- place at the track to see how other riders are doing compared to him. Because he, he's, it's difficult for him to judge. You can only see on data what you're doing yourself. But if, if everybody has a problem in a corner or it's just him, or it's very important to know and understand for him. Okay, so it's more of a request then for you to have a look that kind in of In the beginning, that. it was a request from, okay, from Jorge to, can you uh, have a look? And uh, from that moment, I have watched every practice basically uh, yeah. around the track. And cool. uh, even our organization with Yamaha was very big. So they, don't, they did not need me during the practice in, in the yeah. box, you know. So it's, wow. uh, it doesn't make sense uh, to be there and to, to coordinate uh, the people who are in charge. is uh, the crew chief and the data guy. You don't need to influence them at the moment yeah. they, uh, they are practicing. Okay, cool. That's interesting. Yeah, that's the, what's the craziest thing you must have like seen out on track? <laughs> the craziest thing. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, so wait, how many? How much do you still as team manager now for Petronas? You go out on track. You don't stay in the box. No, no. I'm I'm in the box now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we are a young whole... team. We have a rider coach, which is Tor Life. I'm in connection with him, so yeah. I, I I can place him at points where... So you still kind of got remote eyes on yes. the track. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. True, true. So I know what the bikes. Uh, uh, has been changed so one bike to another bike you need to know uh, the details from the bike because you just cannot sit around yeah. and say ah yeah it looks good you need to know really the differences in between the bike and pay attention that if the rider jumps on another bike that the setting is different and that you need to be at the point where we struggle if it's better or not you know yeah. so you cannot just look around ah, you know because the differences are very very small yeah. to look at and uh, you need to have experienced guys that even can see and listen to that because, yeah, listening is also uh, very important. Yeah, the sound of yeah. everything that's going on. Can I ask you a bit cheeky one there? Why did why did you say that rider coach is overrated? Sort of that whole job role. What do you what do you mean by that? Sorry. What do you mean by the the rider coach performance analyst job being a bit overrated? What? Yeah, well, it, of course it makes a difference yeah. and. Uh, but on the other side, they, they, they know their plan. The riders know their plan, so they can even do without. You know uh-huh. what I mean? So, uh, <laughs> when it's like every single rider, you're a bit like, guys, yes, calm down. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, um, but on the other side, uh, you know, having somebody, have a couple of eyes around the racetrack, uh, especially we are in uh, countries where you don't want to crash and be in the gravel for all too long without people that are still in the pit box you know Mm. you always know as a rider that there is a guy out there who is looking for you you know so he's there only for you and if you have a crash it takes uh, one minute and he's there so you have some confidence as well that when you crash when something happens 
you can rely on him that he will be there very soon. You know, this is maybe aspects, strange too. because we are here in Italy is not a problem. <laughs> but when we are in South Africa or Thailand or whatever, these boys, they go out this, on Friday morning. There is nobody there, only just a couple of marshals, uh, which you don't know, which, which are, of course, trained well. But it's nice to have somebody there who know directly something happened yeah. and, and I can be Come there to, in one to minute. Rescue. Yeah. So also this gives uh, to, to kick on the bike again or whatever, to help him or to jump on the scooter, go back to the, you know. So this is also, uh, interesting. yeah, uh, yeah, a fact that uh, for sure uh, makes a difference. Brilliant. Okay, cool. Right, I think we need to move on now to our final quick fire round. We always say, don't worry, it's not a quiz. It's all yeah. choices rather than do you know this? We usually start with a very stereotypical, simple question as well, which is... Coffee or tea? Coffee. Oh, well, okay. What about uh, Stroopwafels or Frikandel? Might we, you might need to explain what Frikandel is to some of the... Um, yeah, no, no, <laughs> I go for the Affelstrudel, eh? you said, or not? No, 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 no. Stroopwafels. Stroopwafels. Ah. Sorry, our Dutch pronunciation leaves Both? a lot to be desired. Okay, we you can, can have, have that. Interesting. Both. What, tell us, what, what is the beauty of uh, Frikandel? Because I've had them and I quite like them, actually. I, I don't know. The Frikandel is so bad <laughs> that it's actually <laughs> that it's uh, unresistible. You, know? you, you need to have it. So we grow up with Frikandel uh, and uh, I don't know. It's, it's, the taste is different and uh, we all know. You don't want to know how it is made, but still we, we, we want it. We love that mystery meat. Yes. <laughs> right. What's the single biggest change working from World Supersport to MotoGP? Press attention. Oh, okay. Good answer. Uh, what's one thing about growing up in the Netherlands that other Europeans don't understand? That we don't have mountains. <laughs> I was going to say, is this going to be a stereotype. <laughs> we are very, um, we are very flat. Emo emotionally correct, we are so flat. <laughs> That's definitely not true. <laughs> you said it, not us. <laughs> uh, what's your favourite bike you used in track days? R6. Mm. Okay. What was the favourite, your favourite race that you raced in? Bikes. Yeah. Well, anything if you want to. Motocross. Um, wow. At the moment or before? No, no, before, when you were a rider. 250. Yeah. Any 250. Yeah. Any 250. Any 250 two-stroke. Okay, perfect. Okay, all about the bike then. <laughs> What's the favourite race of yours watching from the garage? I would say Valencia 2015. Ooh. Okay, ooh, interesting good choice. choice. Good choice. <laughs> um, which rider taught you the most in your post-racing jobs? Can you repeat that again? Which, which rider taught you the most in your post-racing job? So technical coordinator, team manager, etc. Which rider? Oh. It's a difficult one. <laughs> There's a lot of choices. Yes, a lot of choices. Um, probably Jorge. Uh-huh. But maybe also because I had to use all my skills to keep him <laughs> under control. <laughs> uh, and finally, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, as, as to do uh, go and ride your bike uh, without... Uh, without racing, it's uh, boring. 
Really? So I think, uh, yeah, from my dad, probably. Oh, that's nice. Okay. I like that. Yeah. We've not, cool. we not had someone had to give us some advice from their own dad before. That's good. <laughs> I like that. Cool. Well, Perfect. that was thank the Kenwood so Quickfire. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Wilco. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And have Sweet. a good weekend. Although everyone will be listening after we already know the results of that. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, this will be coming oh, yeah. out, uh, what, probably maybe Monday, Monday after? A Monday. Okay. A Monday soon. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Thanks Walker. so much for thank your you. time. So, before we go then, we usually give you a few things to search for out on the World Wide Web. Couple of interesting Dutch foods mentioned there. Yeah, I put I did the script for the outro, so this time absolutely <laughs> love it. You guys, um, to go look up Stroop Waffles and Frikandel. Frikandel is spelled F R I K K E N D E L. Wow, this is specificity yeah. of the highest level. So, uh, I, oh god, I hope I've got the spelling right actually, because <laughs> that's going to be really embarrassing. But uh, if you go to the Dutch GP, uh, I had one when we've been uh, whenever we've been there previously over the last few years. They're absolutely lovely, and ask for the special, spelt special, and it's got like mayo, curry, ketchup up and spring onion but as you heard from Wilco just don't think about what it could be made of and just enjoy <laughs> the taste and experience obviously only meat eaters and whatnot out there trust me it's pretty good what about you Fran? We'll say they're very much not a sponsor but the world's greatest Dutch product is Chocomel yes and I will not be not here. sponsored I will not be convinced otherwise <laughs> uh, so who have we got coming up on next week's show then do we know can we say can uh, we, we reveal? do know uh, we can't say uh, maybe the signage behind us this is the Lenovo dun, dun, uh, dun. Grand Prix of uh, that is San an Marino extremely niche reference for anyone to get it from I didn't that, get it I think I didn't get it. No? No. Okay, never mind then. <laughs> um, but no, we've got someone very special coming up on next week's show, uh, coming to you on Monday very soon. Won't say who it is. You'll probably already know, though, by the time that we've actually done this. So uh, <laughs> we'll see you next week. Thanks so much, guys. And yeah, tune in for next week's show as well. Yeah.